I'm delighted to be here again today with Scott Walner. Um, we've been corresponding by email and decided we have so many more ideas to talk about that we better get started. <laughs> um, he sent me a document yesterday or today that would keep us busy for at least a year, even if we met once a month. So what can I say? Good to have you here again, Scott. <laughs> Do you want to just remind everybody a little bit about your um, your educational interests? You don't have to go through your whole life story, but what is it that uh, yeah. What is it that you have some education in and what are your interests around that? Well, yeah, thanks for setting uh, time aside. Again, I'm really excited already just uh, in talking about today's conversation. So, yep, my background was uh, in physics and mathematics. I was really interested in geometry. Um, I became a bit disillusioned by the computational nature of physics. And so I um, sort of got thrown into depth psychology and from psychology and uh, Jung and William James and all those into the philosophical side. And then the philosophical side got me into um, perception, which led me to some study uh, like a master's and working on uh, a doctorate in cognitive neuroscience and psychology. Um, and so I did some studies on sort of visual perception and also some learning, sensory motor learning or perceptual learning. Um, See, and that I, gives us a broad field, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm interested in the big questions. I'm interested in the big mysteries and the paradoxes and um, just love to talk it out with people because I, I think a lot about it. And so the conversations are kind of rare. I understand that. There aren't very many people that want to go down these rabbit holes in, in our local environments. So. <laughs> um, so you said geometry. Did you ever take any, did you ever look at projective geometry at all? Um, well, it's, it's an interesting thing, projective geometry of the sort of movement from dimensions. Is that sort of what stands um, out to you? Uh, no, it, I think, I think it's a little bit more specialized than that. It was, I'm not a mathematician, so this is very high level. Um, there was a guy, I think his name is Adams, George Adams, maybe, that got this idea. And he was kind of a contemporary, I think, of Rudolf Steiner. So okay. It was kind of back in that era when they were looking at the kind of intersection of spiritual and physical elements. And uh, he had this idea of projective geometry um, it's very hard for me to explain. I shouldn't have gotten myself into it without having, I didn't, I hadn't, I didn't have any notes on it today, but when you said geometry, I just jumped into my mind. Um, <laughs> well, we, anyway, we, the, the pictures about, that, the pictures that he draws with the projective geometry look a lot to me, like what's in my mind when I think about the mm -hmm. intersections of the, the elements and principles of art and how they construct a world. Okay, what what do the images look like? I'm not familiar with them. Can you describe them just sort of? Well, let's just put a pin in that and make that a topic <laughs> for a future discussion. Because since you're a mathematician, if you looked at it, you might be able to make more sense of it than I can. I just like the pictures. <laughs> Me and, too. Uh, and, and then also maybe another future talk I would like to do with you would be about Arthur Young. I had mentioned to you that I recently got interested in his work and... So we can put that on the list for the future as well. Great. Um, but for today, I think we're going to talk about context. Okay. 
which is always a good topic. I probably have a half a dozen episodes on context here on the meaning code. So let's Very deep. one more into the mix. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, right. This is one of these big, deep ones that you, you like to just jump in with all you got and uh, try to try to sort it out. Uh, one, one thing, one of the first things that comes to mind to me is again, just thinking about the perception that we have, the experience of going about our business in the world. Um, when we have sort of the image of our world out there, we won't go into the metaphysics behind what it is. Let's just stick mm -hmm. at, you know, our phenomenological experience. Um, it seems like to me that the context of our perceptions, even in just a visual sense, um, comes before the perception of the particular object, maybe that is within that context. Um, so there's a. Could you, could you give me an like, example? Could you could you draw that down to just a, a sure visual or conceptual example? Sure. If um, I'm going to reach out to grab my coffee mug in the morning, mm -hmm. uh, I don't. I don't perceive the coffee mug first alone in a sort of empty space. It's hard to even imagine what the object alone would even sort of look like. Um, you know, we have this sort of almost, you know, 180 degree or maybe more um, field of vision. And it is a field of vision, even though we place our attention on particular objects within that, all of the objects that we place our attention on are within a sort of field of vision. Mm -hmm. um, and again, to think of the object alone, to me sort of leads me right into the fact that the context, the background, the field of vision comes first. Um, and what follows sometimes is like a particular, you know, point of attention. Um, so, yeah. So have you, have you heard uh, Jordan Peterson's discussions on perception where he talks about this and uh Berbeke, when they talk about um the peterson says when we look at objects we don't see objects we see we see tools mm -hmm. because that object the meaning that that object has to us is what it's going to do for us in that moment so sure. when i look at that coffee cup my hand goes out in the right shape to pick up the cup it, it's automatic in fact the the somatic response is automatic the hand just opens up to pick up the cup because the perception is this is something i'm going to drink out of mm -hmm. right yes but i think when you're talking about the cup in the context you're talking more about the problem of like one of the problems that they had with AI and training it on visual stimuli is that it can't distinguish one thing out of the background because to, to the AI is all pixels, right? Mm -hmm. And that sounds a little bit to me like when reading Barfield and he's talking about the earliest people and their consciousness, they sort of saw everything as one, everything as united. And so very difficult to pull out the, the, the object from the context. Mm -hmm. So one of the differences in, in modern art, and actually this was also similar in some of the, the pre, um, pre-medieval art, 
is that rather than painting objects with form and everything, you paint the object flat with the background so that the background and the object are married in a way. And so one of my goals always in modern art was to um, generate a push and pull between the background and the, and the object. So that when you look at the painting, you might see the background first or you might see the object first, but you, you weren't sure which one you were going to see first when you're looking at it, because visually they're all on the same plane. Sure. You no know, back plane and fore plane. There's everything's on the same plane. So is that what you're talking about when you're talking about context? Um, well, I would say I'm sure that we could come up with a number of different dimensions of context or something like that. Mm -hmm. Right. So I just want to start by saying I don't have like this particular context and this is the one that I'm talking about. I think there are probably many different sort of lenses or framing or mm -hmm. something. Um, so context can come, you know, sort of in parallel on any given perceptual experience. Um, does that make sense? First of all? Yes. But okay. I guess my question is why it's hard for me to understand what you mean when you say when, if I come out and my cup of coffee is sitting on the counter, mm. you're you're positing that I see the environment of my kitchen and the counter and everything before I see the cup. Is that correct? I would say so. Maybe not seeing, but perceiving. Um, and I do have a slight distinction there where I would put that seeing more into that attention that you're talking about, um, whereas perceiving might sort of be underneath or to the side of seeing as well. Um, but I want to, well, I wrote a few things down, okay. but Good. I want to pick up on what you said about Verveke and Peterson. Um, so, and I think you already know this, it's a way of pointing at like J.J. Uh, Gibson's work. Yes, yes, exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, so in some form or another, it's sort of founded in that research and that theory. Um, one thing to note is that there's a huge link between Gibson and Bergson. There's a there's oh, a really? yes yeah because there's a big link between gibson and uh, wolfgang smith well at least wolfgang smith loves gibson so <laughs> yes um i think anyone that loves gibson would love bergson if it's put into the right frame for them mm -hmm. um but okay so this sort of affordances right so you see the coffee cup or you perceive the coffee cup not just in the sort of um visual cortex model that we have where it's edges and sides and corners and angles and things like mm -hmm. that. Um, it is something which you can take action on. Mm -hmm. right? It's uh, sort of, well, it maybe it exists as potential actions. And then we sort of uh, decide on what action we're going to take with that object. Um, bringing in Bergson just a little bit here, he mm -hmm. had something called like virtual action. That was a big part of his theory is a lot of our being is centered around these virtual actions that we have for the world. All of these potential, you know, outcomes that we could sort of impose on our world, right? We, we sort of feel that way. Um, and uh, so I'm actually saying that those affordances also take into account context, that they must. Um right? Grabbing the coffee cup is put into the context of 
you know, drinking a liquid to satisfy my thirst. It's also put into the context of grabbing all things that are relatively, you know, palm shaped, you know, can fit in my palm, uh, you know, in the larger context of grabbing an object in general, right? So it's almost just like the accumulation of learning that happens is the context for all of the affordances that we might see and sort of employ um, when we actually decide to take action or when we just take sort of involuntary actions or impulses or reflexes. Well, so yeah, this would be an interesting place for me to ask you about this idea that I have. Some people have said that it's analogous to Verbeke's um, relevance realization, but I think it's I think it's a little bit different. I've had this idea for 30 years maybe of um, something that I call experiential DNA. Okay. At about that time in my life, I finally realized, wow, the world is a really complex place. <laughs> it's very complex, right? So the more you know, the more you don't know. And that was a big realization to me, a big aha to me. But what became quite apparent to me is that every time I hear something new, that something new is coming back in through a filter that's built into me. Part of that filter was there when I was born that was available for kind of accumulation of information and knowledge and all of that. And if you think of it as like little soft fingers out there waiting to be something attached to them and create a larger and larger filter as time goes on, then every experience that you have and every book that you read and everything that you see and every story that you hear and every song that you hear or that you sing and every time you sing the same song, you're in a new place in time and experience. And so it gets fuller and richer. And so you're not just gathering data or gathering information. It's expanding inside and over time until this matrix just gets mm. more and more and more um, unique to you so that every single thing you hear, you're hearing in a completely mm. unique way. And then everything you speak, you're speaking back through this filter so that whoever hears it is hearing something different than they'd hear from anybody else. What do you call that? Mm, I, I, I agree. <laughs> I agree. It's like the, the unique nature of a uh, sort of living context, you know? Yes. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. I have an image in my head. Uh, some, sometimes I, I don't often go get imagery. Um, I very much am a sort of, internal conversation type person where I'm having a dialogue with myself and thinking in words and mm -hmm. sentences. I don't get too much imagery, but sometimes I do. And um, so I have this idea in my head about um, a living organism is somehow just rolling along and picking up context as it goes. Right. And um, so that's part of what it means to sort of be alive and a self-organizing system um, and the rolling is the sort of the flow of the process of life. And, you know, all of the tumbling down is making an impact on the shape. You know, I'm imagining a, a boulder at first, like rolling downhill um, or a snowball rolling downhill. And I think others have used this sort of snowball imagery. So I'm certainly, you know, biting off of somebody else's um, story, but 
yeah, there's some continuity to the thing that's rolling down the hill, but it's ever changing. Um, and I like the idea of sort of accumulating these layers of context where some get buried deeper um, and some are sort of more accessible because they're recent. Um, and that's where I got started thinking instead of a boulder or a snowball rolling uh, downhill, I'm imagining just like a ball of yarn where mm -hmm. and um, all these living beings are balls of yarn that are just in this sea of you know, balls of yarn that are just sort of turning and, and sliding past each other. And they're accumulating sort of threads, you know, as they go, maybe there's some landscape of threads that they're rolling over and rolling up into themselves. Um, and I, I like it for so many reasons. One is because I can just imagine zooming in and each thread is just sort of in a fractal way, smaller threads and smaller threads. And um, so that's kind of the way that I think about um what is context? It's this rolling up of everything that's happened. Um, you know, in the, in the most simple way, everything that's happened to you is constantly building the totality of your context, even though there's things that have sort of made an impact along the way. Um, and, uh, yeah, each new impact is being made on a different entity as it's picking up things, it's changing. Mm -hmm. And so the impact that is made is even different from, Maybe that a similar impact having been made 10 years ago or five years ago or, or 10 seconds ago or something. Well, so you have three children. And so it's been said that <laughs> no child is ever born into the same home. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I think birth order, you know, yeah. there's a sort of, you know, um, parlor trick to, you know, birth order, but there's some truth to birth order well, as well. Not just that, but you and your wife change with each child. And so even the way that you interact and the way that you parent changes, and then the, the dynamic of the family changes with each child. And so each child coming in is coming into a completely new dynamic. Absolutely. And that makes me think about painting because mm. when you're, when you're painting a picture, every stroke that you put down, um, is coming into a different context than the stroke before. Mm -hmm. But the first stroke, the context it's coming into is unlimited, right? You have an infinite field of possibilities. The second stroke is limited by the first stroke. The third stroke is limited by the other two. So by the mm -hmm. time you get to the painting, it has limited down to, it could only be what it is. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the ways that context builds up, I think. It's, oh, a, it's a limiting, it's a limiting structure. Most definitely. As the more choices you make, the less there are available to use sometimes. Mm -hmm. Although I think we could probably think of some scenarios where you make a choice, which affords you more options, right? Maybe that's part of like the game of life is navigating choices that uh, constrain you or, you know, afford you opportunities mm -hmm. or, you know, value or, um, that's, that's really interesting because I was thinking every choice that you make removes all the other choices that you could have made in that instant. But it, that choice that you make is also opening up other avenues. So it's it's working in concert. It's almost like the way that entropy works, that, that when you decrease entropy, it increases somewhere else, right? Mm. Okay. 
Well, maybe we want to go a little bit deeper because I know that we've both um, thought about sort of entropy and information theory, and um, it can be very difficult to go down into the depths of information theory or sort of beyond, um, you know, just as going deeper than Newtonian physics or going deeper than relativity or going deeper than quantum physics is very difficult. Um, yet we know that we can go a little bit deeper. There are deeper places to go than, you know, sort of Shannon information or, mm -hmm. um, just binary, you know, digital code in general. Um, but something that I think we both got interested or our ears perked up when we heard this was about, again, the sort of unique nature at the fundamental level, right? Where I think you were mentioning, um, maybe Chris Fields or, uh, Muller, or I heard McGilchrist, uh, reference this too, is that like each instant is completely unique, right? Mm -hmm. And on the fundamental level, like each instance of an electron or a photon or something is unique. Um, and the context, and because it's a part of its sort of own context, yeah. the context is ever changing as well. Right. Yeah. So it's like you, uh, you are a pebble in the ever flowing river. You never are in the same river. Um, and you're never the same pebble, right? And the river isn't the same because of you, the pebble. Um, so, so this is why I said earlier, before we got on the air, I said, the, I cannot talk about context without talking about anomaly. Okay, then I think we're right there. Then are we talking <laughs> signal and noise and surprise and things like that? No, no. Okay. <laughs> but, but, but the story you just told about never being in the same river twice and never being mm. the same pebble and, and all of that, right? Sure. If that is the only story, then that leads us right smack into, yep, all the postmodernists are right. Um, well, <laughs> is that what you think? No. Okay, okay. Not at all. Because, You're saying somebody could follow it that far. Be, well, do you see what I'm saying when I say that, that that story kind of lines up with what the postmodernists are saying or that the postmodernists could use that story to verify their, their perspectives? Um, maybe I don't see it the same way that you do. I, please feel free to share. No, no, I, I, <laughs> I want to know. Well, first of all, I know that there, I am not an expert on postmodernism at all. And I know that there are a lot of really good things about postmodern ideas. Mm -hmm. And I know that there are a lot of really great thinkers that have gone down that path. But what we're seeing in the, in the, um, cultural in the crowd that is not managing, that is now managing or mismanaging the universities is a mm. is a a consequence of some postmodern thinking mm -hmm. that could easily use that story about the river with the pebbles and all of that as a as a support for their position that's really interesting i'm still not quite making that connection one thing i want to say and you sort of already mentioned it is like any ideology there are going to be things that i think many of us would find intuitive and take for granted mm -hmm. there are going to be other things that like really put on alarm bells for us right mm -hmm. um, and i i really don't dive too deep into any um besides the fact that i just like think that um we should try to find values you know for mm -hmm. ourselves and it helps if there's sort of a resonance of values and there are certain sort of cultural 
structures that can aid in that or, you know, sort of um, dissolve that, you know, and um, I'm just kind of very practical about it. And um, I'm well, willing so for to you, what is what is that? What's the, what's the implication of that story about? Because I think it's a beautiful story about okay. never stepping in the same river twice and the pebble never being the same pebble. What where does it go? What, what's the ultimate end of that story? Ah, gosh, I don't know. To me, it just hints at the sort of ever-changing, always entangled nature of things that we kind of distinguish. It's like first in that story, the implication is that there is a river, there is a pebble, and that both are distinct. And there's a sort of, you know, one way, you know, set of causal impacts on each other, right? I'm implying that the pebble is sort of different than the river. Um, and that's only true in one particular frame of reference. Um, or maybe it's it's not true in some particular frames of reference where you could say everything is one or there's some underlying substance underlying the river and the pebble. So what's the difference anyways? Um, you know, what, what I think about is just, again, there's this sort of uh, mutual causality and there's a sort of, yeah, entangled, but still distinct or dissociated um, aspect to the way things are. Um, I guess that that's what, as far as I take it, maybe you see it. Uh, well, so what you're saying is then it, does this tie into this idea that um, <clears throat> like Ian McGilchrist is always saying that everything is change that, that sure. he says it's not, he, he doesn't talk about being, he talks about becoming. Mm -hmm. So does, sure. it, does it fit into that framework? I think so. Definitely. Or we could, um, we could shine a light on the imagery in a way that hints at that, this sort of like process relational perspective. Maybe you've heard uh, Matt Seagal, like when mm -hmm. he talks about whitehead and process theory and things like that. Yeah, he's um, been on a couple two yeah. or three times. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've yeah. watched those. I've watched yeah. lots of Matt talking yeah. and learned a lot, really. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so I think um I think it does it does play into that aspect. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I sort of feel that there has to be something that grounds everything, that it, it can't all be just change all the time. And so uh, I see. Um well, because I believe there's a beginning. Mm -hmm. And, and I, think so too. That, I think so too. Yeah. And so if there's in, a our, beginning, in our sort of moment, you yeah. know. <laughs> well, so if there's a beginning, then there has to be um, a first. There has to be a first. There has to be a. a right. If, if everything is moving, there has to be an unmoved mover. Now, I know that there are a lot of philosophers who have other views on that, and a lot of physicists have ways that they get around that and, and all of that. And I understand the whole problem with causality. And um, but but for me, that's still a kind of a grounding there. You know, I, I have this being is good. God is good. Well, I'm, I'm not going to call God being the ground of being whatever that ground is. It's there is a ground and and in my mind, he is good. So mm. maybe Ian McGilchrist would call that becoming. Some other people would call that being. Mm -hmm. I kind of think it's beyond being and becoming, but um, 
the, so so if I start with that assumption and then I look at the river story, there's okay. no there's no other place to go except infinite regression and, and infinite progression and yeah. mm -hmm. it's kind of a horizontal story. I agree. Or maybe I'm I'm going with you on the um a similar set of analogies. And I think there's maybe a distinction be between a sort of like, you know, if I dichotomize it, you know, an Eastern and Western sort of um, mm -hmm. tradition where this cyclical nature of like ever rotating in the same spot, you know, mm -hmm. um, that sort of fits the river very well. You can imagine a Zen Cohen about the river or something, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, something that, you know, the Buddha or the Vedas, you know, have to say. Um and well, so any, anyway, the reason I brought this up is not to be opposed to the idea, because I, yeah. I certainly think that there can be a marriage of the Eastern and Western ideas. Hmm. But because I think that's why, in my mind, that's why anomaly is so important. Because when I first started thinking about context, I was thinking about it strictly in the arena of art. So let's say 15 years ago, before I got into all this other stuff. And in art, every stroke that you put on the canvas you're thinking you might not be thinking but in in the flow state or whatever you're conscious of how that fits the context of the painting as it is because ultimately the goal is for a coherent whole when you're finished so all the, these contextual things have to work but then at the same time there is um Oh, gosh, I just lost it. Oh, the, the context of one painting against another painting. Sure. So I used to hang a lot of shows. And so we'd get 100 paintings in there from all kinds of amateur artists. And um, some of the paintings were magnificent. And some of the paintings were less than magnificent. If you, you could take one of the less than magnificent paintings, and if you put it in the wrong place between other paintings, you could make it look even worse. But if you put it in between two other paintings, you could make it look very wonderful. And so where you place it is everything. So I started thinking maybe context is everything. Maybe context is, determines all of beauty and everything else. But, yeah. but then I started to think, I don't think context can be everything because of, and I don't know how to explain it because I'm not a postmodern expert or anything i just see what's happened in society in the last 40 years and the the idea of context that has taken over is this idea of everything is relative i see and mm -hmm. so if context isn't everything what keeps it from being everything mm. and that's where anomaly came into me because anomaly mm. is when you run into something that you doesn't fit. This can happen even at the simplest level, like a cell level. A cell can bump into, a, you know, uh, some obstruction in the in the vessel or something, you know, or mm -hmm. a a bug can run into a grain of sand that's in its way. A very small gnat or something can run into a grain of sand. <clears throat> that thing that's in your way, that obstacle or that that situation of chaos in your life or whatever it is that comes in that forces you to adapt and to learn and to change mm. 
that creates this wrenching point, right? Mm -hmm. Sure. That anomaly, I believe, is suited to the moment. Yes, I agree. Well, okay, so that's weird, isn't it? Yes, mm -hmm. very <laughs> much so. Yeah. Um, well, when I try to think about how learning occurs, I get lost. Um, uh, but I agree with you that in some instances of learning, uh, it's sort of inspired by anomaly. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in a, a small group of students at um, in our in our lab at the University of Oregon, and we, along with our um, advisor and PI, we started thinking really hard about curiosity and trying to do empirical work to study curiosity, sort of, mm -hmm. you know, we were sort of living at this sort of high level of like, what even is curiosity? You know, like, what, what is learning? You know, when you, when you go into it um, with just, again, <laughs> just eyes wide open, like, hey, we're taking this all the way down to the bottom. Um, it was really interesting. So learning based on anomaly, anomaly, right, it, it's only anomaly when you understand the context of what wouldn't be anomaly. Like you somehow have a realization that it fits or that it doesn't fit. And the mm -hmm. fitting part of it is yeah. like fitting into something larger than that anomaly. Yeah. The, the fittedness is a really important co concept too, along with all these other things, fittedness. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, Right. When you think about, so learning is a really challenging thing because as you said, you're sort of learning in your present moment. Um, and what does your learning lead you to, you know, does it lead you, you might learn to do something that ultimately is bad for you or something like mm -hmm. that. Right? Learning isn't always this sort of like soaking up knowledge and learning to do, to add numbers and, um, you can also learn in a sort of habitual way. Um, you can learn patterns of behavior. You can mm -hmm. learn patterns of body movements, um, right? You can sort of learn to have better reflexes, to have better. So, um, you know, at what level does anomaly enter into all of those different types of learning? Is it in all of them? I don't know. I would have to think a little bit more. What do you think? Well, I'm not, yeah, I'm not saying that anomaly is the only way we learn, although that's an interesting question. I, I haven't thought that far with it, but, right. um, but another way that, that I think um, when Jordan Peterson wrote Maps of Meaning, he wrote a whole chapter about 70 pages long on anomaly. And mm. uh, <clears throat> When he's talking about anomaly, he's talking about at a much bigger scale, at the macro scale of I'm going from A to B because I want to get to B for some reason. That goes back to your idea of, you know, incentive or <clears throat> curiosity. I see something over there at B that I want or I need to get over to B for some reason. So I'm going from A to B and I'm walking along and maybe somebody maybe I'm in a darkened room and somebody put a chair in a place that it's not usually, and I fall over the chair and break my leg, you know, yeah. or, or I'm, I'm in a hurry and I have to get to um, an appointment and the elevator is broken and I can't get on the elevator. And so I've got to walk the steps and, and so I'm late for my appointment or 
there's a family tragedy and it throws everybody for a loop. Okay. These are, mm -hmm. these are anomalies, but they can be from small to large kind of anomalies that have come into life. But it's when you sort of fall into this world of the unknown or at the more tragic level, you're falling into this world of chaos, but that happens to be where all the new exactly. knowledge is, where all the new information is. And as you said, when you're stumbling around in that environment, you can either pick up things that are good for you or things that are bad for you. Right? So you yeah. can find treasures there, the gold and, and take that back out and become something newer and better, or you can get bitter and twisted and all of that. Yeah. And as humans, just on a human level, it's like, we don't always know what's good for us or bad for us either. Um, you brought up one thought for me um, in that, maybe learning is something about assessing I, assessing is kind of cheating if i use assessing in uh the definition of learning i feel like that's kind of cheating um but maybe realizing uh but maybe learning is like assessing what is anomaly and what is not an anomaly and at every given moment there's an opportunity to learn and that that learning instance is going to be, I'm going to make an assessment on whether this next experience is an anomaly or not. Um, you know, does it fit or does it not fit? And mm -hmm. um, I wonder if you learn in both cases. Yeah, I think maybe you can learn in both places. Where oh, absolutely, I, yeah. I, I, I totally. That's a. I like that framing because I've thought a lot about this idea of. Um we are all living the scientific method all the time, right? <laughs> and so we're, we're doing little experiments and it either works or it doesn't work and, or, or it either teaches us something or it doesn't. And, and what is happening as we, as we live along that route is if we are learning and if we are getting more and more fitted, we're actually lining up more and more with reality. So we're not, um, we don't have to get hit up the head up the side of a head with a two by four because we did something stupid. Right. Right. Um, so, mm -hmm. so we're always lining up. We're always getting more and more fitted to what reality is. And, and I like that picture. You're assessing what it's sort of like saying, assessing what is normal and what is not normal. Sure. Right? But it's like, a, but it's a scientific method basically. And we start that from the time we're babies and you can see insects doing it and birds and bees and everybody else They're if they run into some obstacle, they've got to figure things out. And if they, if they make the right decision, then they can move on their way. And if they make the wrong decision, they're dead, you know? Yeah. Now, one thing that I want to, I want to say to um, go a little bit further with this assessing anomaly versus non-anomaly. Mm -hmm. um, I do like it. I, I don't know exactly how I ended up there. Um, but <laughs> with your help. It's because you're talking your to me. So if it, if it ends up meaning nothing, I, it was also with your help. So thank you. Um, but this is sort of the idea of like signal and noise, right? It's you could insert what's anomaly and what's not anomaly with signal and noise to a certain degree. And what I want to make sure um, I share is that when we go into concepts like signal and noise, it's very easy to fall into the information theory space. And it's very easy to then sort of um, dichotomize 
to the ultimate degree by saying we're going to have zeros and ones and that that type of information is how things actually occur. So what I don't really believe is that <laughs> as a living being, I'm going through moments of anomaly, not anomaly, anomaly, not anomaly, anomaly, not anomaly, or that it's uh, generated by any of that type of activity that goes on in my body. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not willing to accept, and I'm not convinced that that model is good enough for the way that I experience the world. Um, and I might go as far as to include with myself, like all living beings, um, <laughs> you know, so to what degree, you know, cognition goes all the way down or um, experience goes all the way down or where life begins and ends in our sort mm -hmm. of, you know, physical world. Um, I don't, it's useful. And there are many wonderful models that we can make using those theories um, and that computation, but it doesn't boil down to that, to that <laughs> for me out there in the real world. So I just want to make sure, you know, yeah, no, I, I totally get what you're saying. It 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 like we, we were talking earlier about how much fun it is to come up with models of threes or models of twos. And it is fun, but and for me, this this um model of seeing the world as though we're all getting fitted to reality, when I look at something like that and I see it at all the different levels, I'm not seeing it as the same thing at every level. I'm just seeing if something is true at one level, I believe it's going to be true at all the other levels. So if something, this sounds really stupid, but if something is true for electrons, if there's a truth hidden in the world of the electrons, yes. that same truth is hidden in the world of people and in the world of social structures and in the world of um, chemistry and um, psychology or whatever. Yes. You, those truths show up everywhere Mm -hmm. uh, at all scales so if it is true that there is some sort of that anomaly is some sort of thing that is a gift that's being given to us like mm -hmm. i also believe knowledge the capat not only the capacity for knowledge but the knowledge itself is a gift that's always reaching out to us i think these gifts are coming to us and um But anyway, if anomaly really is a gift, if these if these learning moments show up at the right time, <laughs> it might be a different kind of a learning moment for uh, an electron than it is for a human being. Oh, <laughs> but, wow. Okay. Yes. Does that make any sense? I'm Absolutely. There, yeah. Thank you. Um, that was there are a lot of um, thoughts that I'm having. So thank you. Uh, and my expression of letting you know what I'm feeling in here is not doing it justice. Um, but one thing, because we just, I, I want to try to pick up some of the things that we've mentioned that are really interesting. So we talked about a little bit about Arthur Young and that idea that, I, that you're bringing up about what's true for the electron is true for the sort of the spectrum of, you know, what's out there in our universe universe. And there's sort of commonalities or maybe there's analogies or relations or something to those mm -hmm. fundamental principles. I totally agree. And I think it's, it would be, um, well, I, I wonder what would happen if lots of people thought about those a little bit more deeply or thought about that 
in their sort of belt in the way that they go about the world. Um, and that also makes me realize that sometimes at heart, I feel like I, I'm never, my, my core is like to be a teacher or something. Right. And I've been, I've been a teacher. And so I'm always like trying to come back up to the human level in a, in a sort of like pragmatic way. So it's like, so what Scott, like, or so what Karen, like how deep we go into the philosophy, what am I going to do with it all? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Right. We, and we all remind ourselves to bring it back up there every once in a while. Um, and so this is actually where these groups of three, I think, can come in. And so, right, when we create these systems for ourselves, you know, how do we sort of optimize the process of making it meaningful on the human level? Um, so one idea is to sort of synthesize things that should be synthesized. Right, there are ideas and systems that should be syn synth uh, synthesized. Right, how do we know which ones to bring together? It's it seems almost impossible when I just sort of pose it like that. You know, how do I know how much of Buddhism or Christianity or geometry or Aristotelian or Whiteheadian? How do I know which of those to bring together? Um, it seems almost impossible. Like, is a synthesis even possible? And what I would say is maybe a starting place is just with the number of concepts that we include. <laughs> if someone were to try to do that, where would they start? How, how many concepts am I going to pull out? Am I going to abstract from all of these different systems? How many principles, how many fundamental laws, you know, are required to sort of make sense of all the systems and orderings that people have? Um, and even just the ones like we're talking about now that might make a difference on the human meaning making level. Um, so, right. Um, I guess the only fun comment that I'll throw out there is I feel like I'm going to make a case that three is the place to start, that there should be three concepts um, and not two and not four and not seven and not 12, um, but three. And maybe just a challenge to like solve the three concepts um, that can be abstracted from all of these different systems or synthesized. Um, well, so let's play that game a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so is there, we're going to, we're going to dive in, right? Um, well, I'm going to, I'm just going to show you an illustration here. Okay. I see it. Yes. Okay, so that's my attempt at drawing an ellipse with the with the two foci of the ellipse. Sure. Um the the ellipse can only arise if the two foci are there, right? I mean that well they they're all interconnected. It's a 3. Right. It because looks like a 2. Because you have this binary of the two foci, right? But then you have this ellipse, and so the ellipse is a is in some ways a boundary, um, but also a, a uniting mm -hmm. of of the three. And then you have the two foci, which represent a kind of a binary, because there are so many beautiful binaries that are deeply meaningful. Yes. So it can't just be that it's only three. I think there there are three that are two and one or yep. I, anyway, I don't know. 
I'm having a hard time containing myself because I totally agree. Um, <laughs> so I think our end point is three, but I would also think that there's a story of how did we get to those three, right? And I think that has to come through one and two. So in my way of thinking about things, before there are three body problems, there are polarities um, or dichotomies. Um, and before dichotomies, you know, there are something like singularities. And um, yeah, the the geometry sort of gives you a visual of some of the nature of those different groupings where, right, a singularity, it's like, we can identify this point, but we know in reality, it's, it has no pointness to it, right? It's mm -hmm. infinitesimally small to the point that it's not even small, right? We, a mathematical point is not even small, um, right? In a certain sense, it's not there. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, you know, when you extend into a polarity, it's like, you know, maybe stretching out what we think of as a point um, so that there's some directionality or polarity, or again, a dichotomy of this end, that end, or this way, that way. Um, and then from two, you know, there's a lot of ways to, I think, get from either two points to three points, or maybe a line to an angle. Um, but yeah, you quickly move on from like two points that make a line um, to three points that can enclose an area, which is where very interesting things happen. And I think um, part of the reason that I state it that way is because there are a lot of things that sort of happen from the jump from two to three. And I think those things make a big difference for our lives, like within and without, right? An inside mm -hmm. and an outside, a boundary. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a boundary in a sense of a line, you know, sort of dichotomizing into mm -hmm. two. Um, but the boundary that sort of distinguishes inside and outside is really, really interesting. Um, and so, yeah, I feel like three is a natural uh, landing point for the way things are fundamentally. Um, but we could also go up. Like I said, there's lots of interesting ways to put things in a group of four that makes sense with sort of two dichotomies even, um, which is kind of a natural progression. But there's also the sort of octave, you know, of the number seven and, you know, things like that, that are really, really interesting too. Um, but like I said, three seems like the, the best place to start. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the, I, I think in, in the document you sent me, you had a list of threes and then father, son, and Holy spirit was one of the threes. Mm -hmm. But for me, when I've looked at a lot of threes that I think are very significant threes, they don't always line up with father, son, and Holy spirit. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, so love context and anomaly is one of those threes that I don't, you might be able to make a case, but I don't know. It seems to me more like I could say that there is love. And then let's say if I, if I want to bring Christ into it, I would say if, if humanity is the context, if sinful humanity is the context, Christ comes in as an anomaly. Mm. Right. And that, that changes everything, but, but that's because of love. So it, it's not really making a triad in any sense, but you can make sense of it at a spiritual level if if you want to, I guess. I see. Yeah. And I don't want to imply that every triad will fit together. 
mm-hmm. or that there's some meta triad for all triads, right? Yeah. Um, there's, and one reason for that is maybe what we think should be in a triad actually should be in a group of four, <laughs> right? Or it can be simplified down to two. It's, um, yeah. or um, maybe we don't realize, sometimes I think there's this interesting uh, aspect to um, the perspective of the observer that gets lost right where it's like well one way to think of how to get from two to three is just say well there's the perspective of the two and that perspective of it the perspective that's sort of privy to the polarity Mm -hmm. is that third piece right Mm -hmm. so you can easily sort of change a two to a three um right or where the relationship becomes the third sure i mean even if you just have a line you have you have exactly two nodes and you have a line between the the line is the third right exactly and Um, that line can be infinite too when you're talking about polarities right you can have an infinite line with um infinite ends to the line maybe not maybe there is an end but i mean when you think of darkness and lightness is -hmm. there an end at either end of that is there That's a measurement a of is there a measurement of absolute dark and absolute light? I don't know enough about physics to know. So um a measurement in terms of photons, probably. I, I don't um, know. Yeah, you can, I mean, you can there are photon detectors, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, and so you could maybe like I guess you would have to right again. How would you determine if it's like absolute dark? Absolute dark <laughs> would be zero photons, I guess. But for how long? You know, how long do you have to have the detector running? Because a photon yeah. might come along, you never know. Um yeah. So, right. Maybe there is this sort of, uh, you know, asymptotic horizon. Yeah. Um, and I think that actually is a sort of, you would find that in all dichotomies, um, is that there's this sort of on one end, no end. And then when you meet, when you come to the middle, you realize there's not really like a middle there, um, or something. Um, but yeah, that's the sort of paradox. I feel like dichotomies often, we end up in paradoxical type thinking a lot. Um, And maybe again, that's because our being has mostly existed in maybe a three-dimensional, you know, we see lots of shapes and, you know, objects that have three dimensions or, you know, appear as two dimensions. Um, We don't actually encounter real dichotomies or lines. Like I said, you can't really experience a line. It doesn't have any thickness technically. Right. Mm-hmm. Any line that you draw, any line that you, you know, create in the real world is not actually a mathematical line. Um, just like well, you can't. Is a mathematical line just a, a mathematical concept of relation? Right. There's something deeper. That's exactly right. I think that there's this higher dimensional knowledge about what a line is than the way that we represent it or something like that. Mm-hmm. Right. And we, again, we sort of know that there's a simplification to our model, that we're drawing a picture, um, and that something above that sort of, we know what a line is, even though, and we can use drawn lines effectively, even though we know they aren't technical lines um, mm-hmm. in the sort of, you know, space of mathematics, wherever that, you know, wherever that is. Um well, so yeah, let's so let's take let's take this idea of 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 all these of, of a bunch of different binaries and just for grins, I'll take my 
principles of art binaries, which would be, it doesn't sound like a binary, but if you think about it, there's two ends of a pole there. Um, unity, harmony, contrast, dominance, repetition, variation, gradation, balance. So let's take one. Um, gradation, do that. Gradation, okay. So you well, can show some, something right. can be, something can be, all gradation so that from from one end to the other it just grades gently all the way until it gets to the end right or something can just be no gradation at all so it's either nothing white or it's all color you know whatever, whatever medium you're working in sure. so so every one of these binaries has this infinite divisibility that you can think of along that imaginary line between the two <clears throat> but in every stroke of the painting, there's a certain percentage that is graded, and there's a certain percentage that is varied, and there's a certain percentage that contributes to the unity, and there's a certain percentage that contributes to the harmony. And so along these lines, there are there's a point on each line. And at some point in space, all those lines line up on those points. Mm. <laughs> and that's where your drop of paint comes from that fits into that particular context in that piece of art. Wow, interesting. That or if you, you could imagine, you mentioned line as being an element in art. Let's say you have a line in a piece of art, but it's a very raggedy, curvy line, and it's got a lot of texture to it, and it's kind of fuzzy on the edges, and it's narrow in places and wider in some places. So it's not like a Sharpie marker line. It's a more interesting line, right? If you look at that line, you know, um, is that a unified line? And is it contributing unity to the painting? Is it is it harmonious in the way the line is made? Is it contributing harmony to the painting? Mm -hmm. Is there contrast there? It, is the whole painting made of lines so that line is dominant in that painting? Do you repeat that line different places? Or is there a repeated pattern along the edge of the line when you focus in on it you know you get down granular sure. so you see all of these principles feed into every single choice that's made in the painting when, when you look at any work of art you're going to see all of these possibilities and that's why this is why i brought up the projective geometry because it looks like that he has these lines meeting each other in space oh i think i know what so, you mean or a plane you can have a set of planes that all are all together that make a line because of yes. the intersect. Now, now yeah. I know what you mean. It gives you okay. the perspective, the perspective of depth, right? Or three-dimensionality when it's no, really no, 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 no. Projective geometry would be like no. Every line is made up of planes. Every point is made up of the intersection of planes. Okay. Um every plane. Well, I, I can't see. I can't remember the details, but okay, I really don't. Anyway, know his pictures look a lot like this thing I'm talking about, except okay. it doesn't have all the binaries labeled. <laughs> I see. Interesting. And uh, right. And then, uh, as you said before, each choice you make or, or each move you make, at least maybe, you know, painting a painting stroke isn't always, a, you know, choice directly. You know, there's 
sort of free flowing maybe intuition and well, um, see, you're, you're not supposed to think about all these things in your mind while you're painting of course, of course. Your mind is supposed to be completely open but when the painting is done you can go back and analyze it according sure. to this system and you can see oh i completely see how that's working so uh-huh. my idea is that this is the way the world works it's not as though we know it works that way, or we even know that we're participating in it working that way, but that is the way that the world works. I see. Okay. Yeah. And there are sort of like, you know, there's points that are, have beauty in the large context. There's points that have truth in the large context, right? But it's, um, and you could sort of analyze it from this perspective of all these different dimensions that are um, polarities or something. I'm imagining also tell me if this kind of matches up with i'm imagining like a a studio mixing board you know where there's there's all these different levels that you can choose to sort of push the certain frequencies up higher to make the bass or the low end of the music more intense or um the higher frequencies you know whatever it might be mixing board um analogy is that sort of the thing too and it's like we could oh, sort of it works exactly it works with music too i've talked to a lot of musicians and when i tell them these elements and principles they say oh absolutely that shows up in every work of music and i think it shows up in plays and books and there it shows up in narratives and so maybe here here's what i'm thinking which is um Coming to, so my, my grand illusion that I'm going to come up with the deepest triad, right. Um, isn't the point and it won't ever be right because there maybe isn't some right answer, but the, in a sort of verbaki sense, the, you know, ecology of practices that I put around discovering that deep triad is ultimately going to pay off for me or something, right. It's like, Um, you know, you think about people, you know, framing things as the meaning crisis. It's like, you don't, you know, solve your crisis. (laughs) You know what I mean? You just, um, you're, you try harder within your crisis. Um, and then you find yourself at points of crisis and non-crisis or something like that. And so it's about, you know, engaging with the process and the discovery and the learning and what's anomaly and what's not anomaly. Um, and so just the just the practice itself is probably what ends up being fruitful in my mind. You know, I ask myself these questions. It's like, why am I scribbling down, you know, body, spirit and soul all over the place and, you know, habit, pattern and memory and love and context and anomaly. I'm looking at my list or purgation, illumination, union. You know, how am, why am I trying to make all these things fit? Some inevitable right answer is never what's it going to look like? It's going to look like a scribbled down thing on my piece of paper. Um, unless I'm like trying to live it, trying to take actions based on what it makes me think about or feel. Um, how do I utilize it in my relationships, in the organization of my life? Um, you know, is there something meaningful to learn just by putting them up on equal pedestals, you know, love context and anomaly and body, spirit, soul. How does love map onto body? How does context map onto spirit? You know, maybe they don't, but again, I can just sort of take something away from putting them out there because they're such, they're deep concepts. And so engaging with the deep concepts in a meaningful way seems like a good thing to do. 
sometimes. <laughs> well, and the, the other thing that happens, I think, when you engage with deep concepts is that, you know, like Jordan Peterson's always talking about how when you have your eyes fixed on a certain goal, then everything that, that you you need to move towards that goal, all that knowledge or information or wisdom or resource or anything comes into your field of vision. So when you're con concentrating on something like, what was the one, purgation, illumination, and union. Union. If you're if you're contemplating that, then there are things that are going to come into your field of vision. There's a certain Bible verse that's going to come into your head like, oh, that's what that is about, right? Or um, you're going to have an experience with somebody in your family, and it's going to make you reflect on something in your own life, which you realize that you should have done something about. And so you're going to go and ask forgiveness. Or, I mean, the things that we think about do make a difference in our relationships and the way we work in community. Now, what I found happening to me, and I told you about this earlier, is that when I started going down that rabbit hole of building these deep triads, I realized it was I was getting way too much up in my head. And I'm spending my whole day making charts. And it was like a conspiracy theory, you know? And Listen. so I had to put it aside because it's much more important that I can be available to my friends and my family when I'm not, you know, studying or, or doing something. And if, if my mind is always on, I when I used to be doing more painting, when I was really focused on painting, I'd be sitting with my husband at dinner and I'd be staring off into a corner someplace and he would say, you know, come back, where are you? And I'd say, well, there's this little corner of my painting that needs a certain thing and I can't figure out what it is. <laughs> I'd be all up in there all the time and it's not healthy for me, so. I agree um, 100% and anything in sort of human behaviors or how we allocate our time and our hobbies, you know, in a certain sense, it's a hobby, I think, to think about the deep triads. Yeah. Um, anything to the extreme is in the sort of land of addiction and, you know, can have detrimental impacts on your being. So it's always going to be balanced. Right. So I'm not saying put uh, your whole life into these deep triads <laughs> or maybe only a few people are sort of meant for that path. Mm -hmm. um, and while you were explaining your sort of, whoa, I've gone too far type of experience, I can just say I completely relate and I've gone too far you know, in hindsight, maybe many times. Um, and one thing I was thinking is part of the wisdom of going into the practice of going into the deep triads is reminding yourself that sometimes you need to escape your own patterns of thinking and that you can go too deep. And so you have to look out for that and you have to find, and because of that, if you don't just sort of go with your you know, full embrace of it and go too deep sometimes, um, then you're not able to take that new perspective, which is kind of like looking at yourself going too deep and saying, wait, but how can I step back just a little bit from that? Mm -hmm. um, and I think in a sense for me, that's where I learn a lot about myself and maybe sort of like what some people would say is like the shadow or, you know, like the dark side or the edge of the sword that's going to cut me, you know, the double-edged sword of, uh, you know, thrusting about out there in the world, like trying to cut things up and create dichotomies for yourself. Um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it, that's a part of, I think, 
growing through it and learning as you go and you have to engage in it to learn. You also have to make the mistakes to learn too. Um, so learning the sort of best practice for going into the deep triads requires some level of success and failure too. Well, and I'm also wondering, um, and I know you have to go pretty soon, but I'm thinking about um, Einstein. Mm -hmm. I'm sure he was all up in his head for years at a time. I mean, they say he pondered E equals MC squared for eight years before he came out, or, or maybe it was the maybe it was relativity that he pondered for eight years. But anyway, yeah, I wonder if what saved him from you know complete catastrophe was the fact that he was a violinist and so he could escape into his music. You know, true, which is yes. very embodied. I mean, you're very embodied when you're playing. An Absolutely. I have to, I have to fit that into my life as well to be sort of fully healthy in my own opinion. And for me, it's hard to tamp that down. So I'm all, I've always been a very active, physically active person and it's one thing or another. And it's like, I always have to, you know, do it in something running, rock climbing, soccer, whatever, you know, whatever it might be lifting weights, you know, running barefoot in my street, you know, uh, whatever it is. Um, and right, because imbalance is going to be bad. And so if you're, you know, tipping your scales all into the deep triads, you end up, you know, I used to joke with myself that I was an addled scientist, you know, that I was, I was losing it, you know, that I have, are these ideas good or am I crazy? You know, you do find yourself in that place sometimes, yeah. Yeah. or at least I have, um, in a, in a different, different time of my life. But, um, yeah, it's um, those moments were really fun at the time or really fun isn't the right word, but they felt very real. And the the depth was really, really impactful. Um, and I do bring things forward from that. But um, I guess I couldn't sustain it or something. And only a few people, like you said, are able to dedicate eight years or, you know, bury themselves in their art in a certain sense, you know, and you you make a sacrifice to to go that deep and because it's dangerous um because it's sort of imbalanced um sacrifice is another one of those deep things that a person could talk about and how it shows up all over yeah. science even so anyway this has been really super good scott um we'll have to get together again and and dig a little deeper on your list oh my gosh yeah i will try not to add any other questions but it is difficult oh, it's, it's perfectly okay maybe next time we could look at arthur young and i don't know is there a connection between arthur young and bergson i think that there's a lot of overlap um and i i know that young references bergson um he has in some of the there are many videos available online for anyone who's mm -hmm. interested as well he does a sort of teaching series which is you know kind of in the low quality of the 70s and but still great and a little bit slow and sort of pbs news hour uh style um is that bergson or young uh young young oh really oh yeah and that um, would be on youtube yep and um there's also some conversations that he has just with a fellow philosopher. There's a conversation with Fritjof Capra as well, if people are familiar with Fritjof Capra. I've, I've heard of him, yeah. Well, wrote, actually, I read uh, an introduction to one of his books. Yeah, The Tao of Physics is a really um, great book. Our conversation is very much in that uh, realm. Um, but he also, uh, Jung mentions Bergson. Um, so, and especially when it comes to time. Um, and process. Again, he's also, he had a theory of process, 
you know, he he put all he had into his theory of process after inventing the helicopter, of course. Mm-hmm. So he's a fascinating guy. Um, yeah. And I would love to just talk about him offhand. I'm by no means an expert or historian on him. Um, but yeah, well, maybe just... I, what I could do is just play a little bit of a some video that talks a little bit about some of his ideas and then we could bounce those around a little bit and see what we sure. come up with. Sure. Yeah. The, the reflexive universe and the geometry of meaning are these sort of like headlines of, well, his books and then of what he does. And, but there, it is intuitive. You can sort of hint at to yourself, like what he's getting at there, the geometry of meaning. Um, and yeah, that would be great to talk about him. Um, he is very, his ideas I think can be really impactful, um, as well. And and I will yep. also send you a, a link to an online uh, book of projective geometry. Okay. And another thing, sorry, now we're just listing all the things we want to talk about. Uh, <laughs> you can edit this out if you want. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Richard Watson, um, you know, we could talk about that. And uh, also, um, if we do want to go into information at some point, you know, I've the, in, the conversations that you have with Glenn, a number of uh-huh. them, and then also with Perry Marshall, um, that topic is very interesting to me. And so I don't know, um, do you, would you ever, are you ever speaking to Glenn again? Oh yeah. I'm in contact with him all the time. Talk to him still a lot too. Yeah. Uh, so yeah going in and like, I would love to understand like Chris Fields work a little bit better and maybe we can help each other with that or Glenn can help us or something. Have you been watching the series that Chris Fields is doing the teaching series that he's doing? He has a, well, I feel like I've had sort of one eye on it, but not, not full attention. Um, okay. but- yeah. It's one of those things that I have to give full attention, but um, it's super interesting. Well, yeah, we talked about the sort of the entropy memory learning, you know, that whole thing. Yeah. The thermo thermo thermodynamics memory yeah. and learning he has those three in a in a triad <laughs> <laughs> exactly um, um and i just saw jan 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 gibser gibser right? mm-hmm. um he has a triad where he shows um memory as the past and creativity as the future mm. and self consciousness as the present i see i thought that's kind of interesting because that experience of being in the present moment and not knowing what move to make next is pretty analogous to self-consciousness and then of course the memory being the past makes sense and creativity being the future makes sense so i thought that was kind of an interesting ah yeah see there's so there's so many people that have like we talked about probably gone too far in like, you know, writing a book is really difficult and requires a lot of sacrifice. And so there's already so much out there that I'm still trying to learn from, but when it feels intuitive and it fits into your own thoughts, I'm sure you can relate to mm-hmm. that. And other people yeah. who are in this little corner or watching this or who yeah. watched all the videos, Karen, I'm just one of those people like who like to watch Karen's videos and, <laughs> all the- and learn and watch, you know, and like all those guys and Vanderclay and whatever. Um, so yeah, it's, um, there's so much material. There's so much media. There's so much information out there already. It's hard for me to um, even wrap my head around what's available. Um, and then when you trust the algorithm, you know, it's really funny because yesterday I had, I had to talk to somebody about something and 
there was a hole. They they wanted some information from me and I couldn't remember what it was. And I was walking along and I saw this video. I thought, well, it, it wasn't even on my radar and it didn't have anything to do with what I was thinking about. But I started listening to it and four minutes in, something triggered this thought and everything just dropped into place for me. Yeah. That and happens so all the time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And like you said, trust the algorithm. I feel like I actually try to train the algorithm. And so I'm very <laughs> careful. Um, and I think it does pay off. One thing that's scary is that it becomes a sort of like slot machine scenario and or that uh, sort of like garbage in, garbage out scenario where, mm -hmm. you know, even this is the way maybe chat GPT gives people answers that feel really great for them mm -hmm. is they may not be like ultimately true, but it's telling them what they want to hear based on what they've told them yeah. and that kind of with YouTube, you know, uh, we get a little bit of that too, but we also win when you sit at the slot machine, you, you lose, but you also win sometimes. And uh, <laughs> so it is, I do think it is a little bit dark like that. These days I have a sort of uh, yucky feeling about myself and just like social media and screens and things like that in general. Mm. Um, it's difficult for me to sort of fully navigate in my spiritual life or something mm -hmm. um so yeah i can't help but sort of see it in the light of like myself sitting at a slot machine kind of and yeah. but it's uh i feel like i'm learning a lot and i get excited and um some of it is positively impactful for my life i feel like so it's a it's a weird game of the modern world yeah i do think with youtube you have to be very careful about what you watch because I find if I start watching too many cooking shows then my <laughs> then my my screen will just fill up with cooking shows oh, yeah. that's all that's available to me there's no more science so then I have to go back and I have to particularly watch four or five episodes on some sort of science and then they'll come back to me and but it's like can't doesn't it know me by now that that I'm not all about cooking shows you know it doesn't it doesn't just like now I have a good mix of like uh, Miss Rachel in my YouTube channel. If you know who Miss Rachel is, no. she, she makes videos for like um, babies and toddlers to learn to talk and like sings oh. like, like nursery rhymes and things like that. Uh -huh. And she just is just really likable and just fun. And so, you know, a lot in my YouTube feed, it's like, you know, little songs for toddlers and count to one, two, three, four, five. And, you know, so it's a lot of that fun stuff. That gets Until done. all your kids are in school, you pretty much are destined to speak words of five letters or less and, you know, sentences of four words or less. <laughs> mm -hmm. yep. And to have wow. your mind share completely taken up with what toddlers need. But yep. now once they get into school, then, then uh, you get your mind back again. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Karen. It was really fun just to chat with you at the end too. Yeah. But I loved our conversation and we have to talk again. I'm sad that I have to go, but I'm also hanging out to my family. So it's all good. Okay. Sounds good. We'll see you later. All right, see bye you bye. Later.